Hello and welcome to Finance, Energy and Beyond, brought to you by Stanbrook Consulting, a specialist recruitment consultancy for the finance and energy markets. I'm your host Jack Hopper and in this episode I'm joined by Duncan Kelman, Head of Engagement at HSBC. Duncan is a communication expert. He talks about the power of human connection and the importance of building communities. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. Enjoy. Welcome, Duncan. Hi, Jack. Good to see you again, mate. How are you doing? Really good. Great to see you. Uh, Duncan, thanks just for, for the... Thanks uh, for inviting me on to the uh, podcast, by the way. I feel oh, very honoured. Great to have you. Great to have you. And yeah. Look, Let's start by who are you, Duncan? Tell us who you are and, and, and what you do. I'm Duncan Kelman. I'm head of engagement for markets and security services operations, at HSBC, and I look after an audience of about 10,000 people in 44 countries. So, yeah, I, I, I have to do a lot of work for lots of people. What, what does it mean? Uh, so there, there might be some listeners that don't really uh, know what a head of engagement does. What, what do you do as a role? Yeah, so simply put, it's communications, right? Um, so our job is just to connect our strategic thinkers to our audience, make sure everybody's pointing in the same direction. I mean, that's in its its bluntest, most obvious form, right? Um, we tend to refer to ourselves as engagement because we work in a very communication, uh, sorry, a community-led communication style. So it's not about top-down leaders sharing their message through the network. We want the audience that our colleagues across these 44 countries to be part of the story so we can hear their point of view we can make sure that they understand the strategy um, and also create that dialogue between our leadership our exco we call it hsbc decision makers um, also our management layer as well as all of our colleagues that are doing uh, a lot of the work so it's really important to us that we have an engagement environment where people feel that they can access this information easily it's not op led all of it um there's an opportunity for people to be featured who perhaps are new to our organization or are just developing their careers those uh for, for me as, as someone who leads engagement are incredibly valuable storytellers right they can help us get other colleagues more influenced and more involved in what we're trying to do as a strategy really interesting from uh from what you've just said there what's ringing in my head is uh, the importance of building that that culture of community, right? Um, look, I'm fortunate that I've worked with you before, so I I do understand that um, what you do is very much about bringing people along that journey. Was that would that be right? Yeah, you're right. And and also, I think when we talk about engagement um, or communications, most people think it's it's emails, right? It's a bit more sophisticated than that. So what we try and do is we've developed a, a multi-channel engagement approach. So Someone like yourself, Jack, I know uh, big supporters of podcasts and, and vlogs, for example, like short video content, where there'll be people out there that really like the written content or want to watch um, a film about something that's important to them. So the, the key to being a successful engagement lead is to not assume that one channel is going to fit everybody, right? Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that our colleagues can interact with the information that's probably best suited for them. Um, and we use other other tools like instant messaging, for example, where 
you know, I have a community of people at a global level where I can send them a link to a podcast or a video. So I don't have to send them the email anymore. They can just click on it in the moment. Or if we're running a live event where we can get our colleagues to um, come in, enjoy a bit of theatre, a bit of entertainment for, let's say, 45 minutes, where we get experts to come and talk about what they're working on, uh, particularly if we're looking in, trans in the transformation space. But also, we can give that environment for our community to ask questions to the experts so we can really break down that kind of siloed thinking and really make sure that there's a very clear, honest dialogue between all the parties. So really, the key isn't to just communicate one channel. It's to really make sure that everybody has access to this, but also they're very visible on it as well. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, we might do a podcast with a very senior pe a person. And the next podcast might be someone who's literally just joined us from university mm. or they've just got their first job ever and they're coming to work for a, an organization like uh, like hsbc so i think what we do is really exciting um and i think it's really great just to be the storyteller the, the conduit to get these these stories out to people so yeah that that's that's what i mean when i'm talking about engagement thank you i don't think uh definitely one of the parts of my old role that i really enjoyed was having a team like yourselves and obviously the team around you that that really drove that engagement and it, it was fun right it, it you really enjoyed those interactions with individuals like yourself where you're bringing people that we haven't listened to ever uh, yeah and really listen to their stories yeah and you know what jack you you know if you just reflect on our time together i mean even just the social aspect of what we were trying to do um, like the recognition awards, for example. I mean, you know, this was an idea that you brought to us. Um, you showed us how to actually put it together. And it was incredibly popular. Just a little bit, a bit of theatre for 30 minutes, just awarding people for their efforts in the organisation. But when it came down to like the community spirit, it really didn't matter whether you're in London, yeah. Hong Kong, Dubai, any of those places. You really felt like we were part of that community. And that was incredibly important to what we were doing when you and I were working together but also when we when we looked at like our do you remember that day we went down to Hyde Park and we just played softball with the team you know again th that you, you, it'd be difficult to label it as communications but it was more about community it's about kind of drawing people together breaking down those silos and I think if you work in a creative space like we were doing you know we were in transformation it needed kind of creative thinking it needed kind of different different uh, opinions to make solutions um, develop for HSBC, they're, they're the time to do it, not at your desk answering emails, right? It gives yeah. you a chance to kind of socialise, to kind of build those networks, which are incredibly important, not only from a transformation point of view, but also from a career development point of view as well. Mm. So so if you th again, if we just think about the role of communications, all it does, it connects people with information. That's it, right? Yeah. That's its most binary form. But it's how we do that that can really bring people on the journey and understand what we're trying to do. And I think, uh, especially with the multimedia approach you take, it's definitely relevant to the time that we live now, right? Where you where you see TikTok and uh, YouTube Shorts and podcasts are through the roof in terms of the amount of numbers that people are listening to podcasts. It's those different uh, multimedia interactions. It's really really relevant now, right? It. it it is. And, you know, it's a really that's a really good observation because I think when I, you know, when I was a, sort of much younger, there was only three or four channels or four or five channels on terrestrial television. Right. 
you watched it, you had to schedule your time to watch it. Now everything is <laughs> on demand, right? And and I think that goes to show things like podcasts or vlogs or TikTok or YouTube is because you can literally watch it at a time that suits you rather than having to schedule it. And and also, if you think about the, the culture of people joining organizations, probably don't come from the time that I did, right? Where, you know, you're watching terrestrial television. Every, you know, they've probably only grown up with on-demand television yeah. where you could pause and rewind or record something and watch it later or, or see content on your phone. And that's what we have to do in, in communications as well, is that we've got to meet demand, but also, if possible, kind of predict what people are going to be going for, right? So, uh, I mean, a great example I can give you, we use um, a, a, an instant messaging channel uh, called Symphony here, uh, HSBC, and it, it allows, obviously, instant messaging, but we have 10,000 people on the channel, so it's not practical that 10,000 people potentially can access it and start writing content. So me and just a handful of people are able to write content. But what we're finding is that people consume it pretty much as soon as I post it online. So again, that, that style has changed. And we've been doing some some surveys recently um, about how people want to consume the content. And most people by default think, oh, well, let's do a newsletter. We're done communicating. Hmm. Honestly, Jack, it is out of all the channels, it's the one that consistently gets to the bottom. So even that, that has changed from being what was perceived as the primary communication yeah. channel is now becoming one of the least effective ones. And also, just to put a different lens on it, it's one of those where you put the most amount of effort into a newsletter and get the least amount of return. Where you do a podcast, you record it, you edit it and publish it, and it's there. Yeah. Big difference, and it, right? And you can you can listen to it on the go, right? Or you right. can listen to it whilst you're working. Yeah. Um, just a completely different way of consuming content. Yeah. Um, so yeah, look, Duncan, we've we've we haven't really touched on just yet your journey. I know we've, we've we spoke for a few minutes, but I would love to know. I'm curious. Where did your journey start? Did you go to university? Yeah. So um, I was uh, born and brought up in Doncaster, a mining town uh, in the north of England. And at the time where I was planning to go to university, it was the miners' strike. And unfortunately, I was not in a position to go because there was no funding available for me. You know, none of my family could afford that. So I unfortunately missed out on going to university, right? However, in later life, I obviously yeah, studied slightly differently. I got into music, so I ended up studying music. But at the time, I didn't graduate university in the, in the regular way. So I ended up getting a, a job on uh, what, we, what was called the youth training scheme. This was like a government-led um, apprenticeship that you went on to be, and I, I find it hard to believe that I wanted to be a car mechanic, right? That was, that was you know, because again, I living in the North and in an environment that was pretty, financially was, was challenged as well. I mean, these kind of jobs were kind of aspirational. You know, you'd work in one of the factories or you'd work in the mines or you'd be a car mechanic. And I planned to be a, a car mechanic uh, and ended up finding that sales, weirdly, was, was something I was really drawn to. And I managed to get a job selling motorcycles in Doncaster and um, absolutely loved it. Right. And I was a younger man. I was driving, riding around on these amazing motorcycles and had um, and because I was messing around I was a bit young I crashed one of the motorcycles and I did actually get fired from that job and mm -hmm. I, I honestly didn't know what I was going to do so I decided just to come down to London try my luck and bearing in mind right when you live up north London feels like it's on the moon almost right it's kind of 
miles away and I decided to come down and I got a job selling used cars on a bomb site in a, in a place called Chadwell Heath in Essex, right? And um, just built up a network and then ended up selling cars. And, and I decided that I thought car sales was going to be my thing. Ended up ultimately getting a job working for BMW on Park Lane, right? So I, oh. I worked, yeah. So I worked uh, for Nissan on Old Kent Road. So if you imagine the Monopoly board and ended up at BMW <laughs> Park Lane. And when you're in your 20s, honestly, Jack, that was one of the best jobs I think I've ever had, right? Even comparable to what I'm doing now, it was just brilliant because we were in our 20s. We'd have a new BMW every three months. It all insured and petrol paid for it. It was absolutely brilliant. But uh, by 2000, I realized that I wasn't going to want to build a full career in the automotive industry. And I've got... I've got a huge amount of respect for anybody who's been in the automotive industry because it's a very, very tough job, right? Yeah. Um, decided to kind of just get into doing training and doing a little bit of comms and, and such like, and landed, I met someone uh, who offered me a role at UBS Investment Bank. Um, absolutely, mate, just pure coincidence. And this is why investing, you, there's always that saying, your network is your net worth, right? So invest in your network. You never know who you're going to meet. And I just happened to meet this amazing lady called Wendy, who was working on a project. And I told her the kind of work that I did at BMW. And while I was at BMW, I used to do a lot of training and, and some, some marketing around it. And she asked if I'd be interested in just doing a small contract just to roll out some software um, for the bank. And I said, look, I don't know anything about this, but I'll be honest, I'll give it my best shot. Anyway, took a, a, took a contract there. Loved it. I, I absolutely just got on well with everyone. And again, networks are important. And I got offered a role um, to work as an associate director at UBS Investment Bank. And then careers, you know, opportunities present themselves. Next thing, a couple of years later, I'm on the trading floor working uh, in H. Yeah. So I worked in what we call equities research. So I wasn't trading, but I worked in the trading. I worked above the trading floor in so the information barrier stops me from going on to the trading floor to do any trades of course right but i was working in equities research and started doing all their marketing and production and but 2008 came along a lot of financial pressure and I, unfortunately i was just part of that fallout i got um made made redundant and what was interesting jack was you know when you land a job like a, and i became a director at ubs investment bank so obviously it paid really well great career and then I was just thinking oh blimey I don't think I'm ever going to get a job like this again right but what was interesting is redundancy often presents opportunities that you didn't know were there right and it really gets you to think differently and to behave differently and I'll tell you a really funny story I got called by a recruitment agency to go and be interviewed at HSBC and I went there and I had hands down one of the worst interviews of my entire life right <laughs> I couldn't connect with this person at all I whatever I said seemed to just sound like gibberish, right? And and I and I and I just thought, you know what's happening? I'm trying too hard to get this job. I, I've forgotten to be me, and I thought I'd just try and share my skills and whatever. And it was just went to the it just it just went against the brick wall, and it really did knock my confidence, right? And I was thinking, I'm never going to get a job in finance again. I'm going to have to go back to the automotive industry. And then another agency called me and said. We've looked at your profile on LinkedIn. Would you mind just going to go and speak to um, a project at Lloyd's Banking Group? 
So I went down. They said it's going to be partly in London. It's partly in Bristol. It's not a full-time job. It's a contract job. And I um, interviewed and I just toned it right down. I said, look, this is the kind of stuff I do at UBS. It seemed to work really well. Um, but I said, and even at the end of the interview, I said, look, even if you don't offer me the job, hopefully you've got some new ideas. And as I was walking out of the building, my phone's going nuts, right? And the agents are going, you need to go back. One of the MDs wants to speak to you now. Can you go back into the building? Wow. And not, on, not only did I get offered the job pretty much on the spot, I got offered a substantially better rate than I would have done if I'd have taken the job at HSBC. So it was it was just like bait, being in the right place, you know, being yourself, bringing and I brought myself yourself. to the job, right? Mm. And then I was with um, Lloyd's Banking Group for a couple of years, and then another agent called me and said, "Look, HSBC are looking for someone to lead a regulatory compliance rollout." And I, I, obviously, I said, "Look, I've, I've been interviewed by HSBC, and it was a disaster. I'm not really that interested, and I don't know anything about regulation either, right?" They said, "Just go down, just have a conversation with them." And I did. I didn't even try an interview, right? I just spoke to them, right? I just had a really lovely conversation with this guy, Daniel. And I just said, this stuff works. This kind of be a challenge. I don't know anything about regulatory compliance. And I got the job 12 hours later. Like the next morning, I was I interviewed quite late in the afternoon. It was probably 12 hours, a bit, a bit. But, you know. What do you think got morning, you that job? I, in, just because I was 100% honest. I, I said, I can do this. This work, This appeared to work well. UBS and Lloyd's Banking Group. Um, but what I might be able to do is kind of look at it differently, where you've got experts who sometimes know their products so well they think they can forget how to communicate that to regular people that don't know it as well as them. So I just said I might be able to offer that. So it's more about honing it down, Jack, to be honest with you. It's just kind of underselling myself, if anything, because I just thought, well, they're not really going to take me for a job on reg compliance. And then I got, and then I get the job. And you know what? What was interesting is that I absolutely flew in that job. Right? It completely caught me by surprise, because I think they just wanted a different energy. Where it was, mm. you can imagine regulatory compliance is incredibly complex. You know, you're dealing with a lot of legal requirements as as well as obviously dealing with the regulators and all that. And I think I just made it more approachable, and it just worked really well. And then internally. Um, so I've been at I've been at HSBC for nearly ten years now. Um, so I started off in global banking and markets, doing the what we call the um, FACA, the Foreign Accounts Tax Compliance Act rollout. Then I did Volcker rule, and then I met. And this goes back to my point about networks: is that I was having a coffee with another colleague, and someone I recognised from Lloyd's Banking Group just happened to walk in. And you know when you see someone out of context, I think, where do I know that person from? She was the program manager at Lloyd's Banking Group had just been appointed to be head of regulatory compliance transformation program. And I went, what's going on here? He said, oh, yeah, I've just joined. And then uh, honestly, the next day I got a call, Duncan, is there any chance you might be available to come and do it? So I ended up, uh, yeah, so I ended up joining Charlotte, her name was. Joined Charlotte, I did the transformation program, uh, which was a, a, quite a small transformation piece. And then I got asked to lead the red the whole of red compliance that was managing about three and a half thousand people in 60 countries right so and it was brilliant and again that's when i started doing the like the podcasts and the vlogs and all that and it just took off it absolutely took off and then that's when you went and after that that's when you and i met really it was kind yeah. of i joined so the, andy to join cesd right 
So when you were when you joined the compliance role, where you had sixty countries you're looking after, and yeah. you started doing some more of the multimedia yeah. approach, what did you do there? Did you go on a course? Did you teach yourself? How, how did you go about learning that, that those skills? YouTube, right? Practice. I mean, so going back to my point, what I did, I, I studied music, right? So I um, so I ended up getting involved in music quite a bit. So being creative has always been part of it, but you know, it's just I went in a very indirect way to get involved into music um, and I started doing a lot more photography and video and realized that you know actually a, a, a podcast is really just two people talking it just needs a bit of editing right and when I pitched it, it was so interesting Jack when I pitched this to my boss at the time in red compliance um, there wasn't a lot of support for it if I'm honest it was kind of you're dealing with accountants and lawyers they're never going to get on board on that and one guy in particular was really against me doing a podcast the very last podcast I ever did for Red Compliance was what, with this guy because he realized that the whole landscape had changed. And, and one of the things, what I, certainly one of the proudest moments that I had in my engagement career was um, there was a global leadership event in Hong Kong and Red Compliance were asked to talk for an hour and present how they managed to transform a dysfunctional function, right? And it was great. And it was really great just to showcase how we changed the whole landscape of how people want to work really showcasing those amazing people that work in the organization that in countries we didn't even know we had red compliance in right yeah. and it was just wonderful and and then when ruth who was the head of red compliance would do a town hall we could get over 40 percent of the global community to be online at the same time right which is unheard of right i mean they would have a couple of hundred people at most turning up now we'd have 1500 people or 2000 people turn it was unbelievable so it became a very very exciting time and it just gave me the confidence to keep going with this but as far as learning the skills goes yeah youtube is probably your default place or or surround yourself with people that have got more skills than you so you remember when you and i worked together i recruited you know cindy davian and jonathan graphic designer a video editor and a copywriter who were spectacular at what they were doing right so so it allowed me to then conduct the orchestra rather than playing it almost right so yeah. i could focus on what was needed at a strategic level knowing i've got access to this access to these incredible experts who can produce content at a far higher level than me and then between us with the energy we were putting into it it was just brilliant it was really really great and the quality um quality of work that came out of that team um, just, I think it speaks for itself, really. Um, to 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 shift the um, the perception, I would say, this is only my opinion of a of a comms team um, is really what what your team what your team ended up doing, right? So you, yeah. so yeah, it was it was a uh, it was great work. Yeah. So you, I never knew. So you've gone from car sales, yeah, to but now motorcycle sales engagement, yeah, motorcycle sales. <laughs> Bar sales training, and then wow. head of engagement. Yeah, so what a story! And do you know what, Jack? Um, I mean, there are people that have got, you know, probably have a degree in marketing or whatever. But and th that's really important. I, I certainly wouldn't say that has no value. Yeah. But the real value is how you can build those networks, right? How you can build your personal brand so people know that you're the go-to person, right? Yeah. So you could be technically a very good video editor or a, or a brilliant podcast producer or a copywriter, 
but you've got to be able to kind of show your stakeholders that this has value you have yeah. value to them right and and that unfortunately can't be taught at university it comes with experience it comes mm -hmm. with listening to people that have got that that experience but also trying stuff out as well i mean if we just think about our time in transformation it wasn't about these long three-year projects we were on ultimately we were there for like quite a long time but it was lots of little deliverables we tried it we pushed against the margins a little bit it didn't work we went in a different direction yeah and that's and and it's trying to build that confidence with colleagues like it doesn't have to be perfect right if it doesn't work it's not a problem it's just it's we're just going to take it in a different direction and sometimes yeah. failure like not everything that i've delivered has been a hit by the way but it's put me in a different direction it's allowed me to kind of creatively work my deliver my role to the people that want to receive this information and the other thing I, the other tip i would get, say is that you've got to listen to feedback right so you might think you've done an amazing you've crafted this amazing email or edited this incredible video and it falls flat it's because you haven't listened to the audience you've put your own agenda before the audience you're trying to deliver to so again just from a, an engagement point of view is I make it very clear that we're not doing a video or a podcast, we're telling the story and that yep. might be the channel we use to help you tell it. And also like all stories, they've got to have the setup. What's this video about? What's this podcast about? Yeah. Um, the conflict bit, the story, which is really, really exciting. But then ultimately you need a call to action. What do you want people to do with this information? We've asked them to give 10 minutes of their time, 15 minutes of their time on a podcast. What do we want them to do? Is it if we're just going to say you've done all this amazing stuff, you, you've not invested their time very well. So yeah, what's the downstream benefit of them putting time into things like a live event or a podcast or a video or a vlog? And that storytelling element is is uh, evident in the work that you, that you you guys and your team are doing. I'm I'm sure you're doing a lot of that in your new team as well, Duncan. Are you, are you I enjoying am, it? I, I am. And do you know what? It's really interesting um, that even though I work at a very community level admittedly huge numbers right someone came to me the other day said are you doing work for other teams and i went no and i and then i went and i'd look and the, what they're doing is is copying pretty much what we're doing like well, you know, I mean, that's how i look at it right it's kind of well there's always that thing that that statement plagiarism saves time right but um yeah it was really interesting that someone thought i was producing all this other work when actually what they've done is basically just copied exactly what we've done be the and put a different, yeah, and just put like a different name on it. And it's like, I can't believe it. There was so much opposition to be doing this. Now we've got more and more people doing what, what we set out to do. But that's that's goes back to my early point. Always try something new. Don't you'll get you'll get people who won't enjoy it or, or won't be behind it. But if you believe in it and you can prove this works and you can get your community behind it, then you've got I mean you've got you've got a career on your hands. That's how I look at it, right? Absolutely. I think a couple of takeaways just from um, what you've been talking through here, like I think human connection now is so is, is maybe even more important than what it was before. I think especially as we're getting a lot of uh, AI and progressive technologies, being able to have that human connection and really sell yourself um, when you're trying to apply for a new role or build your network is really important. Yeah. Uh, and it's something I'd encourage everyone just to really have a think about, right? 
and something yeah. you, you've done really well and it just shows that it's open doors I, I think you know the lessons i've learned i mean you know ego can play a big part right you want to be seen as like you want the title head of something or other or you want to be seen as like the big cheese right but actually, if you rein your ego in a little bit, you don't need people know that you're high value. It's better to put the other people ahead of you. So when I work with the team, you know, it's about what can I do to make this team and the group of people I work with look great, right? Because most people would know that I'm involved with it, but I want them to enjoy the theatre of being up front. But also the other bit, when you when you talk about relationship building, it's not just a, even at a colleague level. Like when I go into the office, I pretty much know all of our security officers in the building by name, or they certainly know me, right? Or the the the, the people that work on the reception or the people that come and clean our desk, right? Yeah. And people have observed it. I just talk to everyone and then they're naturally drawn to you. So we've got these guys who come in quite late to clean out and they all know who I am. Duncan, how you doing? All that. And it's honestly, it makes you feel amazing when, it and it's because I've, I've put the effort in just to kind of say, hi, even though they're cleaning my desk, I just say, honestly, out of all the desk cleaners I've ever had, you've been one of the best ones, right? Imagine how people feel when they receive a compliment like that. Or, you know, show value. Like the security officers, 95% of the people just walk past them, right? But if, you think about the, but if you think about the job they're doing, they're keeping you safe while you're at work, right? They are, they are stopping you from getting hurt. They're stopping you from, you know, it could, there could be a number of reasons, right? But they keep us safe while we're at work. You know, it takes... 10 seconds to say good morning sir to somebody right exactly and i think this, yeah it's a really it's a really valid point something i've always been conscious of just say hello it's, it's just polite. Just, say hello. just say hello yeah. to these these people and uh yeah yeah as you say may make them feel good may make yeah. a massive difference to the day and what a great feeling that is yeah yeah and and also the other thing the fun thing to do is sometimes you underplay your job a little bit oh what what do you do oh, i just work in a bank you know it's kind of yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know you don't need Honestly, there's no hierarchy. No, and and again, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm ambitious. I want to do well at work, right? But I don't want it to be the cost of hurting people on my career journey. That's never been my style at all, right? Um, and most people are not like that anyway. But you are aware that there are very successful people that, if they look back on their career, think, "Oh, blimey, I wasn't that pleasant about mm -hmm. this kind of stuff." It's cutthroat. I don't think it needs to be. I think your work can speak for itself, right? Your value your your network how people feel about you and you know again if i if i think about our time together jack i mean you were incredibly well thought of because you went out of your way pretty much every day to help us do our job better right um you know you were very aware of what we were doing and you were very invested in the community side of things so even though you may not have had a senior title role you were an incredibly important part of the management yeah. team that that's my point right jack so mm -hmm. You know, again, I don't even know what job title you had. I don't even know if you had one or not, right? But <laughs> it didn't matter to us because we had Jack Hopper, the guy who could get stuff done for us, right? Yeah. Who's organized, who helps us get this stuff done, brings communities together through fun events uh, and all that. So, yeah, high, high. So you were high value and highly thought of, right? And effective. It's cliche, right? But for, I mean, I mean, I'm, I've always just been taught work really hard be super honest yeah and if your boss needs something drop everything and do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i'm not sure if i agree with that last one right because i mean even you know if you're there to support of course right but no sometimes it's just as effective to say no i can't do it 
but um, yeah. but actually, I know you're joking, of course, right? But but Duncan, but I, sometimes I've seen your no, no is, yeah. Go ahead. No, go on, go on, go on. You finish. I was going to say no is still sometimes to say no. Yes, powerful. Is it just important and. And other things that I've noticed as well, people thinking that if they send an email at eight o'clock at night, it just shows that you're working late. But as a as a leader, as part of our organisation, thinking, why is that person working so late, yeah. right? I mean, it's down to me whether I read an email at, at 10 past eight at night. But I've also managed, managed my team. I said, look, I, although I know you're committed to what you're doing, it doesn't prove anything, right? It actually upsets a lot of the leaders if we think you're working like excessive hours because that's not our job our job is to help you do your job really well not expect you to do 12 15 hours a day right yeah and whilst we're on this subject as a leader what's yeah. the what's the biggest lesson you've learned about leading people um you've obviously gone through a, a transition where you're working in a really tight-knit office together to covid yeah. to where everyone's working from home and you still got to get a lot of stuff done. Was there any lessons that you've learned along the way that, that really that really sort of stand out? I, I, I find that if you create an environment where people feel comfortable with you, they can challenge the status quo. Even if you've got, if you've made the decision and there's a challenge to it, if you listen to it and, it's, and, and your team can come up with a better solution, I would always go in that direction. But you've got to balance it, right? It can't be too democratic because yeah. nothing gets done but also you can't be too autocratic because then people are not going to want to do the work with you so you have to build this environment where people can kind of have their investment in it but as a leader you ultimately have to make a decision okay we're doing this now the lesson i've learned and i learned this when i was at bmw right i'd be very opinionated right and a, a, one of my manager at the time make a decision and i wouldn't support it right and as I've, as I've developed my career, I've realized, hang on a sec, I was such an idiot for doing that, right? Because it, while it was fair to challenge it, while it was in a closed environment you know, with other leaders, once the decision's made, you need to support it. You know, that, that leader has made a decision. Your job isn't to undermine it. Your job is to now support it. So even if Being there was positive. a disagreement, yeah, even if there was a disagreement in the discussion phase, and this happens to me all the time, like people want to do videos or podcasts, but sometimes you have to say look you're just doing a video you're not thinking about you're not putting your story first right so i have this this conflict all the time but if you if you're assertive enough without kind of really being condescending or you know your your decision is always right provided that you really just take yourself away from that ego side of things and just listen yeah. you know you've got people in your team that have brilliant skills and a team isn't made of made up of people just like you right they're going to have different opinions, diff a different point of view, a different set of skills, right? And when I think about the team that you and I put together with uh, for engagement, we had video, we had uh, a copywriter, an editor, you know, an amazing and a graphic designer, right? Even though I can do all of those pretty well, I can't do them as well as someone who's a specialist in the area. So I relied on their expertise to help me do my job better, right? So a lot of it is really just park your ego, right? Even yeah. if you're massively ambitious, there's more value in that network. Listening to people that have experience, don't undermine people's decision-making process. If a decision's made, you support it, right? Simple as that. If it fails, it's not to say, I told you so. It's kind of say, we tried it. Can we go in a different direction? Things like that. So most of it really is just kind of listen more than speak, I would say. 
some great wisdom. Thanks, mm. Duncan. And uh, we're coming to the close now, but we've got a bit of a closing tradition. Have you? So I've got a question for you. So, yeah. Duncan, can you name someone within your network who's really inspired you? So someone in your career that's really inspired you and tell us why. It's really inspired me and tell us why. Okay. Um, yeah, I will actually. Th this is a good one. It's someone I worked with at Lloyd's Banking Group called um, Elizabeth. All right. And I don't know if you need to kind of bleep that name out, but she was amazing. Right. And I think this this shows how you can prejudge someone. And get a completely different outcome. So Elizabeth had this reputation of being a bit of a, a, a nice queen not very friendly, um, quite unapproachable. That was the impression that I think most people got. And I fell into that trap, right? And Elizabeth and I had a big falling out over some document, right? She wasn't happy with it at all. And then something happened where I was out with her socially and we were just chatting about, it was someone's retirement doing, we were just chatting about music. And she said, oh, I love to sing and all that. And I said, look, I'm in Bristol a lot. Do you want to come and do some open mic? I, I'm a musician. I can play. And we built up this incredible friendship, right? I mean, honestly, it was like, I, I, I was thinking, is this the same person that everyone's telling me about, right? And I learned so much from her because, again, I think, you know, she, she was a woman trying to do a job in what is predominantly perceived as a, a man's environment. And she yeah. was incredibly smart, really bright, um, a great leader. But I think even she felt a little hurt by that reputation, right? And I think when I got to know her and I became socially friends with her as well, and the way she kind of got on board with things like some of the fundraising events that we got in, involved with, I think people's perception of her changed as well because she became this like real person. But it was the biggest shock for me was knowing that this person still has to put her trousers on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us, right? Um, so, and and with her, I think... It was just really good to know that um, reputation and perception is 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 quite powerful, right? And I went into it having a completely different perception of what she was really like. And it turns out, like, you know, we're still amazing friends now. Um, she's an amazing person. She's built an incredible career for herself. And, um, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. So I would say out of all the people, yeah, she's, she's definitely the... She'd be so surprised when, I tell you when she hears if she ever hears this, right? Um, yeah, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet you were expecting me to say Andy or someone like that. But, no, no, and no, Andy, no, no. And, Andy was brilliant, right? And I, I loved it. But yeah, that I think that to me was like that transition point where you realised, you know what? I need to stop prejudging. I need to stop thinking or being affected by other people's opinion. I want. I should have found out for myself earlier on. And it, you know, it's interesting when we had that argument and then we spoke about it afterwards. I ju it was like the next day and I said, look, I'm so sorry I sent you in that format. I should have been more, um, I should have perhaps been a bit more aware of what you required. It was about signing off a document. I was doing it on SharePoint. She wanted a physical document to sign, right? And it was a bit of a miscommunication, but it not from her, it was from me not listening, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, and I think that little blow up or that little argument actually just broke through things. And then suddenly, an amazing friendship wow. 
developed out of it yeah and they're, yeah. sometimes they're they're the biggest lessons that you that you have right when yeah. you have maybe a difficult interaction yeah especially in, in, in my uh career when i've had difficult difficult interactions where i've actually learned the most and then learned to pivot the way that i do things so yeah um, great story duncan thanks for sharing yeah, yeah. that no brings problem. us to uh to the end thank you for sharing your story uh really inspirational i think what we can definitely take out of this is the the power of networking and the power of human connection. Um, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Duncan, and sharing your story. So thank you. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. Thanks, Duncan. <laughs>